Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, my friend? Great. It's, uh, today, if this comes out on Monday, it will be Martin Luther King Day. Indeed. And Martin Luther King Day means a lot of things. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, there's different ways people like to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But if you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you would like to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I have a perfect way for you to do it. Yeah, I'm uh, so excited. Ooh. <laughs> as am I, as am I. It's a very big deal. It's been a long time coming. But I am very happy to report that my class, LDS Anti-Racism 101, Abandoning Attitudes and Actions of Prejudice, has officially launched today. And uh, I'm so excited to share it with you all. If you are listening on Monday... I mean, listening now, uh, that means the uh, pre-order is closed. Like I've all, I'm all, I've already since closed the pre-ordering phase because I, I can't accommodate any more people in the special uh, Zoom slash talkback meeting. I have grossly underestimated how many people actually wanted this course when I originally did a soft release of the pre-order, and um, I, I, I may have charged. A little too little for it. So, if you are listening to this now, I am both happy, but also a little sad to report, in the words of Fat Joe, that yesterday's price is not today's price. So, um, it's still affordable, it's still accessible, but it is not as cheap as it has been. And the course, um, you know, just to toot my own horn for a little bit, I think it's great. Uh, the people who have seen the course have had nothing but positive things to say about it. But I do want to refine it when, uh, you know, after this month or so to give people a chance to listen to it. I do want to hear uh, y'all's feedback. I do want to hear, um, you know, what worked for you guys, what didn't work for you guys, what further things you want to explore and what further medium media that we can use to uh, further uh, this conversation on abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. So um, in this course, you're going to learn a lot of things about uh, how to have conversations about race, how to identify racism, what it is, uh, give you a better framework through which to operate, talk about how to confront it, how to address it, and uh, what you can do as early as today to heed the prophet's call to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice. So if you would like to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day and heed the prophet's call at the same time, buy my course. It is available uh, both on the website and it will, of course, have a link in the uh, show notes. Uh, very excited to share that resource with everybody. Yeah, this is going to be so amazing. Um, but I do have to say... It turns out you need to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice against my jokes because that's a problem. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if that's a problem. <laughs> I, I feel like that's more of a boundary than anything else. But, <laughs> you know, point is point is taken, my friend. Um, yeah, well, I'm just excited. You that hear it's the joke out. coming and you're like, this is going to be bad. <laughs> if I know it's coming. But like, yeah. I'm more am. Like I've said it before, but like in martial arts, it's not the punch that like you see coming that knocks you out. It's always the one you don't see coming that hits mm. you hard and that just shocks you. So I'm just like, it's not that 
the jokes are always bad. It's just that when I don't say, see them coming and they're especially bad, I just hate myself for a little while. <laughs> I'm just like, first of all, how did I not see this coming? And why is this so bad to the point where I did not see it coming? Just so many questions. Right. And I just want to reinforce and reiterate what James said. I have not ha- gone through this course yet myself. I will be doing that as soon as possible. But... I know what went into this, and it's going to be great. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be amazing. So make sure that you get signed up for this course and then continue that conversation however it makes sense. Um, But yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, Just a couple of things. Well, I guess no couple of things. We uh, we do have some material to go over today. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis uh, 5 and Moses 6. Before we go ahead and dive in, I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So again, mm-hmm. Genesis 5 and Moses 6. Um, Genesis 5 is primarily a, uh, a genealogy. We go through the generations through uh, of Adam, uh, through Seth, all the way down to Noah. And then in Moses 6, we get a bigger look at uh, one of the people in that genealogy who is Brother Enoch. Now, some of y'all should know about uh, Genesis 5. There are some suspicious similarities between the lineage of Cain and the lineage of Seth. I definitely want to acknowledge that. I don't plan on really analyzing that too much. It's just something you should probably be aware of. Also of note is the focus on the main patrilineal sequence, like no siblings or wives are named throughout this entire genealogy. It's just the firstborn sons, which is a uh, adherence to that thing that we talked about at the beginning of our study of the Hebrew Bible, where so much of the stories that we're going to be reading are not about the firstborn. Uh, they're about, you know, the second born or the last born or, you know, the fourth born. Like once we get to Abraham, the next successive patriarchs we, we, we study are going to go second born, second born, uh, fourth born, last born, and then second born again. Just there, it, there's going to be this whole theme throughout the entirety of the Hebrew Bible where some of the biggest patriarchs and leaders and prophets that we look at are people that are not from uh, people that are not the firstborn, which is, uh, as we've already discussed in our discussion of, uh, you know, the Babylonian narratives, firstborn is the most valuable for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, but we just don't have that order affirmed in the Hebrew scripture. So one more opportunity to uh, point that out. Now what makes a uh, Noah or sorry, not Noah, but, uh, after the birth of, uh, who is it? Enix. Okay, I'm just going to skip that part. Hold on. Once we get to Enoch in the lineage, there are some notable differences about him. It's noted that uh, Enoch walked with God, which in most traditional interpretations might just mean that he was a righteous dude in the same category as his great-grandson Noah. 
And then in Hebrews 11.5, we get a little bit more information. Uh, He's mentioned again briefly, but we get some significant details. Uh, It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, close quote. And then instead of the usual death formula that's present all throughout uh, Genesis 5 and the other named patriarchs, Enoch simply was no more because God took him. That's what it says in the text. And then he has the shortest lifespan of all these patriarchs. They all get to live for like 900 years. And then we got Enoch living for 365 years. So Enoch is just an odd one in this line for, you know, for the reasons that are mentioned, but not really elaborated on. But that's what we got in the book of Moses, uh, chapter six, and the Come Follow Me lesson focuses, I mean, strictly on this story. Like you'll see all of the headings are focusing on the Moses six story uh, of Enoch. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but I think we need to uh, say a word about how to read these texts. Um, Well, I'll let Derek handle that much because I know he's going to have something to say about, I I suppose, uh, maybe a scholarly integrity with regard to how we read Genesis five in relation to Moses six. Uh, we should probably get to that before we read Moses. Yeah, sure. Like, I think I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but I think so much of this has to deal with uh, genre, right? Um, so for those of you, no one knows this yet, but we recorded a guest episode with Dan McClellan, and we talked a little bit about this. Uh, Dan McClellan is a Hebrew Bible scholar, among other things. And uh, we didn't really talk about the terminology. I think at some point we should have a conversation about anti-Judaism in the text and looking at it responsibly. Uh, I've often thought about, well, what do we call the text itself? And many of us um, traditionally call it the Old Testament within Christianity. Our Jewish friends call it Tanakh, which is uh, an acronym for the Hebrew words Torah, law, uh, prophets, and writings. And I actually might might do that. Instead of saying Hebrew Bible or instead of saying Tanakh in English, I might just say the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. It's a little bit longer, but I think it encapsulates the fact that this is a collection. It is a library. It does not consist of one author or one style or one genre or one century or even one language. We've got... Uh, mostly in Hebrew, but also some portions in Aramaic. And this, the long way around is to say, you've got to look at the genre, you've got to look at what the text would have meant in its historical context from as best as we can reconstruct. And I don't think that the these genealogies in Genesis 5 should be taken uh, in a fundamentalistic or woodenly literalistic manner as if it were journalistic history, right? Right. We've got these narratives that really uh, compel the spirit in a very profound way, but they're not doing this. isn't This isn't uh, like FamilySearch.org. This isn't Ancestry.com. This isn't DNA. Whatever's. This is uh, traditional stories that have been passed down, and you have to look at those type of stories within the type of genre that it is. 
So that's kind of what I want to say. And then the, the little piece about Moses is, to me, I look at the Joseph Smith translation as uh, in the context of the reception history of the Bible. That is, this is how Joseph was led to process, interpret, and develop themes in the Bible uh, in the 19th century. So I think we need to situate the book of Moses as a 19th century text. If you put it in the voice of Moses thousands of years ago, it makes no sense. But if you put this text in the 19th century, it makes a lot of sense. And I'll talk a little bit more about this next week when we talk about Moses chapter 7, mm-hmm. because then we do not have any a portion of uh, Genesis with it. I want to go back and talk a little bit about the first three verses of, the first three verses of Genesis 5. Okay. And uh, many people have noticed this, so this isn't something new to me, but it's looking at the issues of Adam, gender, and the image and likeness of God. So I'm going to read from Robert Alter's translation. Robert Alter is a, um, a Jewish scholar of the of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, right? I'm going to start saying that. It's a little bit long, but oh well. <laughs> so he's a scholar of this body of literature and um, has a very masterful, both scholarly and literary quality uh, translation. So here's his chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. This is the book of the lineage of Adam. On the day God created the human... Well, now here's a problem, because now I'm going to have to talk about the Hebrew. Because this word that Alter translates as human is just the word Adam. So Adam is the word for humankind or humanity or mankind, uh, although we don't now want to say emphasis mankind. Uh So um, but it's the same as the proper name Adam or what gets transliterated as a proper name. Adam is the word for the creatures that were made out of the Adama, the, the, the fertile soil. This is humanity, right? So let me just go back. This is the book of the lineage of Adam, Adam. On the day God created the human, Adam, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and called their name humankind, Adam, on the day they were created. And Adam, Adam, lived 130 years, and he begot in his likeness, in his likeness and by his image and called his name Seth. So what we've got interesting is the English translations that we normally have alternate between the word Adam and the between the word humankind or mankind. Um, Alter says humankind here. But Adam is this gender-expansive, gender-inclusive term that refers to all of humanity, not just males. So when it says God created Adam, or God created uh, humankind, the King James has when God created man, they're all in the likeness of God. And notice what name they get at the end of Genesis 5-2. The um, King James says... Uh, and called their name Adam. And Alter has, um, and called their name humankind on the day they were created. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about this is they both share the name Adam, humankind. 
and it's it actually in in Hebrew is plural. It is their name, um, and so referring both to the male and female. So it says he created the male and female, and blessed them and named them. Uh, et shemam there. This is third masculine plural uh, on the name on the word shem meaning name. And their name is Adam. So what I'm trying to say is, was Adam only male? And the answer is no. Adam is the word for our species. Uh, it's only by sort of a, um, what is the word? Not mythological process, but sort of by a symbolic process gets encapsulated into one a hypothetical person, right? And so this character, Adam, represents all of us, represents all of us in terms of gender. And so that's what I want to name is that they, male and female, um, humankind, all of that is together. And now, what is the payoff of all this? My point in this is, well, how do we look at issues of gender and sexuality? And I'm probably repeating stuff that I've said elsewhere before. But I do want to now caution us from jumping quickly to gender neutral because what we don't want to do is erase specifically women's experiences and named women in the text, which is what I love about Will Gaffney. I think one of the great victories of Satan is to pit straight women against gay men, right? Because Mm -hmm. patriarchy has affected us both deeply but quite differently and patriarchy wants to us to struggle against one another in a way that, that there's competition, that the more visibility for, for straight cisgender women there, there is, then the less room there is for gay men. And so I think by holding these conversations together and looking at how oppression harms us all and looking at those who are at the intersection of the, this oppression, such as queer women, um, and queer trans people, we can actually get a better handle on this. So I don't want to elbow out Heavenly Mother in any way. I don't want to elbow out Eve. I think Eve is going to be life-giving for many women. Uh, Heavenly Mother is also life-giving for many women. It can also be used to reinforce patriarchy and sexism because much of our culturally correlated uh, approach to Heavenly Mother is essentially the product of patriarchy and serves the needs of patriarchy, especially when we have the existence of Heavenly Mother really only there as a technicality to make sure that we remind everyone that Heavenly Father is straight. That's essentially the role of Heavenly Mother the way she's popularly understood, Mm -hmm. right? I don't see much about Heavenly Mother's name, what her name is, or what her personality is like, or what her function is or what she does or what she desires or how she communicates like we get to see her as someone there as a derivative of heavenly father's heterosexuality and is that empowering of women well i mean that's for women to answer right Mm -hmm. so so yeah i don't want to jump too quick to to like oh like let's just be inclusive and not mention gender at all I don't want to do that. I think there's places, and that's what I love about Will Gaffney's uh, projects, is she definitely wants to specifically name women 
And so she will have some binary language where she wants to say women and men. Because if you just say people, people will just think of men. You have to say women or else people don't think of women. Right. You have to say you have to mention women or else women will not uh, be represented in the text the way men are. Because mm-hmm. we so uh, often default to seeing the word people and just thinking of of uh, um, uh, of men, right? Right. Any thoughts you have on these things? Nah, just like I read right through these first uh, three verses, and I was ready to get right to uh, right to um, you know this genealogy, but I and I, I even noticed this use of the word Adam in the choice that the NRSV makes to use the term uh, humankind instead of Adam or instead of man. But, uh, you know, my mind didn't go directly to what you have just pointed out. Mm-hmm. And also this brilliant observation that uh, Will Gaffney makes that you must say women and men instead of people. Otherwise, people will not may not consider women. And uh, that's, a, that's a problem in the text. And also just this need to not erase uh, gender in this uh, particular context, mm-hmm. because it's not that we're seeking to erase gender. We're seeking, or at least what I think was the intent of this translation, was to make sure that we weren't just thinking of men. But uh, I, I, I really like that observation and that effort to make sure that uh, women are seen in the text by explicitly naming uh, women rather than just saying people mm-hmm. and brush, you know, mm-hmm. painting over this with a broad stroke because mm-hmm. it simultaneously lets us know that both are included and also that gender, you know, isn't inconsequential. And I don't think that naming women has to uh, reinforce a gender binary. It doesn't have to erase our intersex friends or our uh, non-binary friends. It doesn't have, it could, but it doesn't have right. to. I think, right. um, looking at this collaboratively rather than competitively, looking at it as let's get a mosaic of different images of God, let's get a mosaic of different experiences and put that all together. Uh, And by mosaic, I mean you have all these individual tiles. It's not all mushed together into one blur, but you get this representation. You get all these facets, and I think you get a better handle on God, God's image. That's the whole point of talking about this because – what does this say about God, right? And how does this yep. function? That's really what, that's one of my favorite questions that most theologians don't ask, is how does this doctrine function, or how does this text function? If we mm-hmm. say that God's image is male and female, well, what are the implications of that? What are the repercussions? Are you going to impose compulsory heterosexuality on it? Are you going to condemn singlehood? Are you going to condemn non-binary or intersex people because of your views of male and female? Are you going to condemn queer people, right? Right. Is that really... What Genesis 5 was trying to do in its historical context, no. That was not on the table. They were not addressing these questions. And to, so to shoehorn this text into addressing it, what, something it wasn't addressing is problematic. But what I do want to do yes, is cherish this idea of the image of God is abundant and generous and, and capacious can, and can hold male and female and all people in between both, neither, whatever. Um, yes, and we can do that without erasing women as well if we do it correctly. Yes, sir. And notice that um, Adam is created in the image and likeness of God. And then Seth in verse 3. Yeah. Did I even read verse I, 3? No, but this I did notice because, you know, that immediately 
I, I don't know if the word the right word is contradiction or per, perhaps a better word is just complicated by that mm-hmm. uh, following statement in verse three. But yeah, go ahead and read it so we could talk about it. Right, and um, and. Adam lived, uh, I'm reading Alter again, yeah. and Adam lived 130 years, and he bought, begot in his likeness and by his image and called his name Seth. So yeah. we get this sort of transmission of the the image, um, and, and I think that's important, right, that this image is inherited. And is it the same image? Did what does that all mean? I mean, some people will say, "Well, Adam inherit was created in God's image, but then that image fell." I mean, our our Protestant friends might say this, and now the image of Seth is in the image of a fallen Adam, and not any longer uh, directly in the image of God. Now they might say that, but I don't think that's really what this text leads to leads us to conclude because it doesn't talk about the fall right here. I right. don't think this is a this is really in the in the minds of the the community that produced this, so certainly a Protestant concept of the fall is not in the minds of the community that produced it. I think it has to do with my question of how does this function? Does our image of God lead us to become uh, be, treat other people be, uh, better, or does our mistreatment of people lead us to reduce our image of uh, and concept of God? And I think this is something that we see in systematic theology of the categories by which we label God. And there are certain streams, both in Christianity and Judaism, that say, well, we can't articulate anything uh, saying what God is. We can only say what God is not, because God is a holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other than us, in the language of Karl Barth. Or that that God so transcends human categories and is so that that we can't even use our categories to talk about God. And I think there there's a piece to that that we need to be in dialogue with because yes, I think God is so amazing. Just like queer people transcend human categories, God mm-hmm. also is going to transcend our human categories and language. It's never going to be good enough to really encapsulate the entirety of God. So we're going to have limitations in our scriptures. It's not going to be perfect. My language isn't going to be perfect. I'm not going to be able to cover every possible uh, contingency, right? I mean, that's the story about- of the, that's the story of sacred text in general, though, isn't it? And we've talked about this before. Right. So I just wanted to name that: is how does this function? Yes, when we say that all of uh, humanity are children of God, or that. All genders are created in the image and likeness of God. How does that function? And I think it can function in one of two ways. It can expand our view of humanity, or we can take a narrow view of humanity and limit it to God to being a heterosexual couple. I don't want to limit God to being a heterosexual couple. I just don't. That seems bad for men. It seems bad for women. It seems bad for queer people. It seems bad for trans people. It seems bad for uh, single people. It just seems bad. So I think talking about Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother is a starting place, but that isn't the end of the conversation about God. Like, we are continuing. uh, The baton has been handed on to us as children of God. We continue the story, and this is a never-ending story, which we are continuing. And I don't want to result in a never-ending episode, so we should probably move on. All right, sounds good. And uh, by move on, I'm going to assume that means we're good to— jump into uh, the book of Moses 
And we're going to be in, what is this? Moses chapter 6. Right. I just wanted to say one thing about um, the Enoch material in Genesis. It's really interesting because of what it doesn't say. We've just got this tantalizing tidbit. And some people are going to say, oh, well, this proves that Joseph was was right and this proves that the the uh, the Enoch material in the book of Moses is a restoration of an ancient thing i'm like well like let's look at our critical thinking if you actually read the text any um informed reader of the text is going to is going to jump out at that with curiosity and want to fill in those details and imagine it's a it's a ripe place for midrash for introducing additional stories so and the, just because we've got Enoch material doesn't mean that oh there's something missing from this text that's now been restored. I think it's deliberately designed. Now in its historical context, I think the original community would have been familiar with other Enoch material, right? And uh-huh. uh, that sort of is implied by the text. There's a lot of material that we're sort of missing out. Um, but we can see this, that many people we've got, uh, and next week I'll talk about the book of First Enoch, which uh, is really long and interesting and complex, but it goes to what I'm saying is here, this brief little tantalizing tidbit cries out for us to fill in the gaps with our imagination. And many people have done this, including um, the inspired process by which we got the book of Moses. But that's all I wanted to say about um, this, that we should not take the Moses, the book of Moses material as wooden literal history, right? There was no one there with with a little voice recorder. There was no one there with a camera. That's not what, what this was. This isn't journalism. This is sacred scripture. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to say about the Enoch material? Um, a few things. Um, and I'll try to keep them, uh, I'll try to keep them brief. But the first thing that like jumped out to me was in verse five. And I think you may have referenced this a while ago, Derek, uh, when we were talking about the role of scripture or the roles of journaling, Mm -hmm. uh, from marginalized communities. I'll just go ahead and read this real quick. Uh, this is talking about a book of remembrance that was kept in the, which was recorded in the language of Adam for it was given unto as many as called upon God to write by the spirit of inspiration. So uh, this right here is already a subversion of the supposed patrilineal sequencing that we've read Mm -hmm. about in Genesis uh, 5 um, that supposes that the only people qualified to speak or the only people qualified to speak on behalf of or to God or about God even are those named men, those named firstborn men that we see in uh, Genesis 5. This is directly saying that any who called upon God could write by the spirit of inspiration. Mm, and that yeah. is uh, that is very liberating, or at the very least, it should be very liberating. I find uh, that a very um, comforting piece of scripture when it comes to how we're going to be remembered, how our histories are going to be uh, read in the future. I predict that a lot of the people that we may very well be regarding as, you know, to use the book of Moses's language, seers in the future, first of all, an overwhelming number of them are going to be women because just look at our demographic right mm-hmm, now. Look mm-hmm. at the people who are really moving and shaking things right now. The people who are really um, just doing some powerful, affirming, and relevant work in our community. The overwhelming majority of them are women. And let me tell you, um, 
this is kind of embarrassing. I mean, it's not embarrassing. At least men should be embarrassed by this. But, you know, over 100 people have already signed up for my course. Guess what percentage of those are women, Derek? Um, 75%. Higher. 90? More than 90. More than 90, my guy. Well, now I have to say that you looked so hot in that preview video that <laughs> that I could see now you did did you take into account like there's gonna be people that are attracted to that. No that, and it's gonna grab the attention not. of straight women. My God, I'm trying to fight racism. I ain't trying to like Well, I you just... looked <laughs> you you look so great in that video. I don't know what it is, if it's like um this like sweater thing that you're wearing or the lighting or the whatever it is. It might be both. Or, uh, okay. Well, I'm dude. just saying like there's going to be people who are like, they're going to notice. They, they um, may very well notice. They may very well notice. Um, yeah. It's, it's mostly women, my guy. It's mostly women. And um, that's, that's, that's not an accident. Uh, I mean, granted, the majority of our fan base is also women. But even still, I think the fact that a podcast like ours or that content that we create happens to be primarily uh, consumed by, by, by women is, um, you know, just some, one of those things that I consider in what leadership is going to look like in the future, what mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. any potential revolution might look like in the future, and uh, who's going to be the writers of the sacred texts that our children value, like, um, or, you know, just the next generations. So that could be anybody. That could be anybody who communes with God, anybody Mm -hmm. who is writing Mm -hmm. by the spirit of inspiration. And uh, this, you know, just having to read this verse, getting to read this verse just reminded me that, uh, you know, we we are going to have a variety of voices Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. it's not going to (laughs) look... Like the voices that we have been accustomed to listening to. That, that's all I'll say about that. Right. I just want to say something about the Book of Remembrance. And I think people talk about, oh, well, we can't criticize the leaders of the church. Well, what do you think a Book of Remembrance does if it's Ooh. being honest? Ooh. Like, if you look at the scriptures, they are literally a record of a whole bunch of stuff that the leaders of God's people messed up. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible would be very, very short if it didn't contain stories of God's people and God's leaders messing up big time, right? There wouldn't be anything to say. And so the fact that we are keeping books of remembrance, we are Mm -hmm. going to record the mistakes of our leaders and we will be vindicated when those books are brought out. We're going to have Samuel the Lamanite again, right? Right, In 40 years from now, people are going to look back at our podcast and like, yep, they got it. That's the hope. They got it. (laughs) That's the hope. (laughs) So, So, yeah, I think... An honest book of remembrance, um, for it was given unto as many as called upon God to mm-hmm. write by the spirit of inspiration, as you said. Right, and so right. I'm glad that you brought that out. And I'm glad that you brought up this whole infallibility slash failure or messing up of God's people. Can, can, we, can we just talk about what we're about to read here, what we've just mm-hmm. read and what we're going mm-hmm. to read? Like, this is probably one of my biggest wrestles with the uh, with the Bible right now, and um, particularly the end of the Hebrew Bible, the true end of the Hebrew Bible, the Chronicles thirty the Second Chronicles thirty six mm-hmm. ending. Mm-hmm. God's project 
has failed multiple times. And I don't even know if that is the right word to use, but it's a word I felt like using when it has come to God's experiment with humankind. We saw Mm -hmm. a failure Mm -hmm. with the Garden of Eden. We saw one with Cain. We're about to see one with Noah and Mm -hmm. the flood. We're, we're, We're like teasing one or, you know, let me just read this verse real quick. This is verse 27 where God is again lamenting the failure of humankind and therefore his experiment. This is verse 27. I am angry with this people and my fierce anger is kindled against them for their hearts have Mm -hmm. waxed hard and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes cannot see afar off. For these Mm -hmm. many generations, ever since the day I have created them, they have gone astray and have denied me. And I'll just close that quote for, for now. But we're going to see that here. Mm-hmm. We're going to see that mm-hmm. with Noah and the flood. We're going to see that with the Tower of Babel. We're, we're going to see that with the exile, like multiple mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. just throughout the, human, uh, the Hebrew Bible. We see the failure of this kind of divine experiment that God is engaged in with us. And that is just one of, like, I'll, I'll just speak for myself in saying this has been one of the hardest wrestles of my reading of uh, Hebrew scripture. And, you know, you see it in the Book of Mormon as well, but you're just like, what is happening here? Like, what is, I almost asked the question, what is God doing? What is God thinking? And, and you know, I'm asking mm-hmm. anew the question, what is this all for? Um, and, you know, that, that, that can just go off into a whole nother, another episode, right. a whole nother thought. Cause I, I do at some point want to properly treat uh, this wrestle I've been having with the text and uh, these, mm-hmm. these multiple mm-hmm. failed uh, experiments, but that that is ultimately what we're teasing out in the book of Enoch here. And what is also going to proceed mm-hmm. precede uh, multiple others, but I think there's hope. I, I will close this particular thought with uh, the end of Second Chronicles 36, because there is hope. It ends with, uh, uh, what's the dude? Cyrus's edict. Um, let them go up. Those are the last words. Those are the last words. There's hope mm-hmm. here, an opportunity for people to return to their promised land. This is the end of the Jewish sacred scripture, is this edict, this slight note of hope. Um, I mean, it's significant, but it is small and we're like very temp- we'd be very tempted to read past it. Whatever is the purpose of all this, it always ends on a note of hope. There's always a hope for redemption. And I think there's more lessons in there than one uh, that, we can, uh, that we can take from. But uh, before I explore that thought any further or like close that thought on such a bummer, I did want to point out that the end of Hebrew scripture ends on a note of hope. So mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. that, Derek, I got some more things I would like to share, uh, particularly with you, my friend, uh, unless you got any mm-hmm. other thoughts. Uh, about yeah, I had I, a couple yeah, of thoughts. Number one is talking about this book of remembrance and seeing the pattern of of disappointment. A lot we don't what we don't want to do is think that our dispensation is completely exempt because we're not. <laughs> yeah, I, that's why I've developed this concept that that I called micro apostasies. And this is has to do not so much with the impact, but the scope. I'm saying they're never, uh, depending on how you interpret these promises, just because we don't have a full-on, complete 
apostasy where the priesthood and authority will be taken away again from this earth and God's going to have to start all over again. That doesn't mean that there can't be little blips along the way where we have micro-apostasies and micro-restorations. I really think Mm -hmm. that um, we've had some of these already, especially like with the restoration of priesthood and temple blessings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, to men and families of color uh, in 1978. That was a restoration, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think we should not just chill and, and think that we're exempt from that. And I think that's what all of this repentance literature throughout all of the scriptures is, is to say, wow, Lord, is it I, right? We're not <laughs> exempt, and we've got to deal with these things. The other thing I wanted to say is um, I don't have a lot to say, but I did want to point out the this connection with ableism in verse 27, because part of the voice of God uh, filtered through the voice of Enoch, which is now filtered through Joseph Smith's uh, characterization of these words, uh-huh. is um, their hearts have waxed hard and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes cannot see afar off, right? And so we've got issues of ability and disability here in the text that are used as a moral indictment. And so I just want to name that and... Um, uh, and then we've got language of, of darkness in verse 28 and have sought their own counsels in the dark. And mm-hmm. something I've learned from Will Gaffney is, well, we've got to be careful how we talk about darkness. Like, are yeah. we is darkness yeah. to be something to be afraid of? Yeah. And is this connected with people being afraid of, uh, of people of color, right? Like, how do we, if darkness equals bad and whiteness equals purity, like, what does that say? Part of the problem is that white people... That is one of the biggest lies Satan has done is to convince us that white people are actually white. We're not pigmentally and literally from an artistic color standpoint, we're not white. We just have appropriated the white because white equals pure. Like if you like my my shade of skin is a lot closer to yours than it is to a white piece of paper. I love how Marvin Perkins says we're all brown. Now I don't want to erase. <laughs> I don't want to erase the different experiences and the real oppressions that happen to people of color. I'm not trying to, but I do want to name that this, this, this idea that white people got to claim that we're white and we with power named ourselves as white. We're not white in, in that sense. Like that is one of the biggest lies that Satan has, has uh, accomplished. Right. Is we got to associate ourselves with purity when we are literally, I, ha- I have melanin. I don't have enough, but I have melanin in my skin, right? Right. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to name those things. Thank you. Thank you. So um, while we're in these verses, let's just go ahead and uh, go a little further in the text. Just a little bit, though. Uh, by the way, this is the Lord speaking to Enoch about the condition of the earth. And the Lord is about to call Enoch to what is going to feel like a near impossible task. Uh, but, but, you know, nonetheless, the same task that the Lord will continue to call many prophets, uh, you know, in the future from, from this point anyway. And Derek, I do want you to pay attention to this because... Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to be paying attention. Very good, my guy. Uh, I got some things for you. So, when Enoch heard these words, and by these words, this is basically the prophetic call to Enoch. When Enoch had heard these words, verse 31, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and spake before the Lord, saying, 
Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight, and am but a lad, and all the people hate me, for I am slow of speech? Wherefore am I thy servant? And I want you to pay attention to this answer that the Lord gives uh, in the in the following verse. And the Lord said mm-hmm. to Enoch, Go forth and do as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled, and I will give thee utterance, for all flesh is in my hands. And I will do as seemeth me good. I'm going to stop there for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a couple of things that are worth noticing. For one thing, did God answer Enoch's question? Did he answer Enoch's question? No, because exactly. Enoch says, why did I find favor? Yes. Even though I have this disability and yes. the Lord didn't say why. Yes. Now, I don't want to invalidate, uh, I don't want to invalidate Enoch's concern because I can, I can relate to this a lot. I can relate to this a lot, a lot. But I think that God not answering his question directly is something that we got to acknowledge. And there's a couple of things. For me personally, one thing I take from this is how I often may ask questions that are valid, but are nonetheless not the question I actually need an answer to. Uh, In fact, the Lord goes on and he actually tells Enoch what he needs to know. This is uh, verse 33 and 34. Choose ye this day, say unto this people, choose ye this day to serve the Lord God who made you. And then in verse 34, my spirit is upon you. And this stuff is powerful, the rest of this verse. Mm -hmm. Wherefore, all thy words will I justify. And the Mm -hmm. mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore, walk with me. So the Lord doesn't outright tell him. Enoch, I mean, why the Lord has chosen him. All he says is basically, I got you. That's basically Mm -hmm. all the Lord says to him. What I have called you to do, I am going to give you power to do. You're not asking the right question and asking why I have chosen you. The question you should be asking is perhaps, are you willing willing and ready to do what I'm asking you to do? I'm going to make you able. Like, don't worry about that part. I have called you. Like the question as Mm -hmm. to why I've chosen you, that's not relevant right now. What you need to know, all you need to know is that I have called you and I got you. I feel like a lot of us, um, you know, who have any kind of relationship with God, we sometimes fall into the trap of asking the wrong questions when things happen in our lives or whatever. Not to say that, again, those questions are invalid, Mm -hmm. but I, I feel like the Lord has blessed even Enoch in this moment by answering not the question that he had originally asked, but the question he really needed to be asking and the question that mattered, which is that I am going to sustain you through all this and I'm going to give you all this power to deal with this. So I feel like that is one powerful lesson, but I also see another thing here. And I think it's uh, no coincidence that I thought of this uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Mm hmm. This has echoes of the uh, kitchen experience. Are you familiar with this story, Derek? No, I'm not. Okay, the kitchen experience. This is pro- this is definitely a B-side 
when it comes to uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s experiences, but it is a uh, popular B-side, probably one of his most popular B-sides. It's basically Martin Luther King Jr.'s Ice Ice Baby of experiences. Flip over the other side, this is definitely one of the more popular ones. But the kitchen experience, this... uh, this is basically when Martin Luther King Jr. received a, revel- a revelation in the midst of a very trying time in his life. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm reading the story now. It says, late one night in January of 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. sat by himself in the kitchen, a cup of coffee by his side, and felt the darkness of despair creeping towards him. A few weeks earlier, Rosa Parks had refused to move her seat on a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama, sparking the Montgomery bus boycott. And King, who had just turned 27 and served as a minister at a Baptist church, was the leader of the boycott and had received an endless stream of death threats against himself and his family. Mm -hmm. He reached a point when the forces arrayed against him seemed impossible to overcome. And uh, now these are Martin Luther King Jr.'s words. He says, I was ready to give up in the state of exhaustion when my courage had all but gone. I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. And God will be at your side forever. Close quote. Mm. Almost at once, my tears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared and I was ready to face anything. Three days later, uh, a bomb exploded at King's house, uh, thrown by unknown attackers, but he, his wife, and his child were unharmed. And uh, a group of his followers soon gathered at the house, armed and ready to go for vengeance. But King spoke to the crowd and calmly diffused their rage and anger, and he told them a living example of how to stay true to the principle of nonviolence in the most challenging circumstances uh, imaginable. And I'm going to read King's words again. Uh, he mentions this as a turning point of his in his life. It says, quote, Early on a sleepless morning in January 1956, rationality left me. Then almost out of nowhere, I heard a voice that morning saying to me, Preach the gospel. Stand up for the truth. Stand up for righteousness. And since that morning, I can stand up without fear. So, mm-hmm. in all of this, I am... Uh, I guess I saw a parallel between his and uh, Enoch's experience, and I guess most prophets' experience. But because uh, Enoch is one of the people that, you know, has legitimately, you know, all this fear about going out and basically saying to people that hate him, you know, see that, Derek? Like, Enoch, he's like, I'm not cool. Like, people aren't going to listen to me. They don't like me. But, like, Oh, it sounds like me. I mean, you said it, not me, but let me keep going. (laughs) Um, But, like... He says, the Lord spake to Enoch and said unto him, there's an ordinance here, 35, anoint thy eyes with clay, wash them, and thou shalt see. And then sure enough, in 36, I think this is powerful too. The Lord shows Enoch things that the natural eyes cannot see. And in this, a seer was born. Like this is uh, another time we see that word seer being used when the Lord shows people things that he doesn't show a lot of other people. I liken this to what Du Bois called the double consciousness or the gift of double sight. And this Mm -hmm. is why Mm -hmm. so many black folks have been instrumental 
in bringing America, like Western society in general, to a better understanding of itself that it might be able to repent of its past sins. And I think it's important to name at this point how difficult such a task is and what a heavy burden was placed upon Enoch. But Enoch was promised that he would be sustained through it all. He was promised that his spirit would be upon him. He was promised that all of his words would be justified. And ultimately, this was something that Martin Luther King Jr. was blessed with as well. Mountains did indeed move before Enoch, and rivers did turn from their course, and thou sh- and mm-hmm. he did abide in him, and he did walk with God. So I see a hero in Enoch for a lot of marginalized people, a lot of people who are called to what feels like an impossible work, a lonely work. Derek, do you hear what I'm saying to you, Derek? Do you hear yeah, what I'm you're, saying? You're, yeah, okay. you're talking to me. Oh. Okay, let me keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm going to finish. I'm going to wrap up soon. But this is powerful. There are people who are faced with this task that is draining, it is lonely, and sometimes it is dangerous. They are doing not just an unpopular work, they're saying unpopular things. They may view themselves as unpopular themselves. They may think that other people hate them, but they are nonetheless still called to this work. They are nonetheless Mm -hmm. still called to be seers. They are nonetheless still, still called to call people to repentance and to do this work. And um, he took that experience and he rolled with it. And pretty much the rest of this, uh, what we have in this narrative of Moses 6, this is uh, this is Enoch getting to work. But I think the majority of what I what I uh, wanted wanted to focus on, at least for this story, was this kitchen experience that uh, that Enoch had. Uh, just felt like an appropriate thing to highlight for Martin Luther King Day. And it felt like an appropriate thing to speak about with uh, with you, Derek. Uh, I just wanted you to make sure that you did not read those verses and miss uh, the concerns of Enoch and also the promised blessings to Enoch and also the situation that Enoch found yeah. himself in. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely uh, an issue of liking the scriptures and likening the scriptures unto yourself. And I've noticed like the journey of Enoch is a lot like the journey of queer people, especially yep. the lines, all the people hate me. Right, which you mm-hmm. which you read, um, and Enoch wrestling with what he feels are his inadequacies, which he names three reasons. One is I'm but a lad. Um, all the people hate me, and I'm slow of speech. And those were reasons why Enoch was surprised God would choose him. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the way that God works with those things, including the disability of being slow of speech. Or this issue around seeing. Like you're talking about this anointing the eyes with clay. Uh, and what the Lord did wasn't like fix Enoch's eyes, but through an accommodation allowed Enoch to see differently. And I think whenever we have uh, accessibility and accommodation, it's about, well, maybe people will see or walk or communicate and it will be different, right? It will. They will do it differently. I mean, there's different ways of achieving the same goals, and that's the whole point of accessibility. So what the Lord does here is extends a reasonable accommodation to Enoch in a number of ways to accomplish these things, but it's going to be different. Notice that it's not natural eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mm-hmm. beheld things which were not natural to the, uh, not visible to the natural eye, yep. right? And that's what it means to be a seer. It's not so much the um, 
making you see the way everyone else sees. It's making you actually see in a way that is authentic to you and gets the job done, even though it may be different. And I think this business about all the people hating Enoch, what Enoch is wrestling with is kind of what I would see as a coming out because he has the choice. He could have said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm too afraid mm -hmm. to go to the, these people and tell them my true identity as a prophet of the Lord, a true uh, things. And a part of the reason why they hated him was because of the traditions of their fathers, right? Mm -hmm. That they've been dealing with this wickedness. And so I just want to name that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for likening these scriptures in this way. Um, one thing I do want to talk is a little bit is about authority, because this is something that a lot of people, especially in Fowler's stage three, and if you don't know James Fowler's stages of faith, uh, listeners, you should go check that out. It's very helpful for people on faith journeys, even though that's not the model that I go to first. I, I like the, uh, the crash theory model a little bit better. But I think a lot of people in Fowler Stage 3 are hung up on authority. What like is Stage 3, I, by the way? Fowler's uh, Stage 3 is synthetic conventional faith. And this typically starts in the teenage years. And this ends up being a very um, uh, emphasis on conformity and authority. And like, I know that, that this is right. And I, um, you end up sort of structuring it around that, uh, um, that, that stage of, of faith. Um, this is really before a lot of challenge, before a lot of nuance, before a lot of, of these things. Um, I think most uh, church members, not just in our church, but in, in most churches, most church members are at Fowler stage three, if you look at Fowler's uh, stages. But my point is, uh, some of these questions on authority are, are valid, but they're really a, a concern for Fowler stage three people, and they're not so much a concern for other stages of faith. But I wanted to go talk about the um, uh, authority, and let's look at Mo um, Moses chapter 6, verse 7, which says, Now this same priesthood, which was in the beginning, shall be in the end of the world also. And I think there's a lot of Latter-day Saints that want to relax in this, this idea of, oh, well, we've got a monopoly on the priesthood which we've got the, we've got the temples and we've got the only saving ordinances and we've got the only living prophet on the earth and we've got the only priesthood on the earth right yeah and yes though that is our belief but my question as a theologian i want to ask well how does that function what do you do with those beliefs what are the implications of that because if it functions to make you a little more relaxed, well, that's it's not functioning, I think, the right way. I think there's right. some people who say, well, our Sunday morning church, we can make it as boring as we want because we've got a monopoly and people can't go anywhere else, right? So it doesn't have to be good because we've got priesthood power and priesthood ordinances and all this other stuff. It doesn't matter our worship style. It doesn't matter. I mean, of course it matters. And I think 
it doesn't our our doctrine doesn't have to function this way in fact it could function the exact opposite way by saying yes well we've got this monopoly on priesthood power and authority so we are going to live into that stewardship and make the best of it and make sunday morning the most powerful and most inspiring and most eclectically uh culturally relevant experience for a wide variety of people and we're <laughs> going to make sure that it's not boring right right um and so it could go either way. You have to ask the question, how does this function? So that's I'm I need to part I need to make a list of questions that theologians should ask or beginning budding theologians. One of them is how does this function? Yeah. And you can look at this when we look at issues of straight supremacy. Well, how does this institution function or how does this ordinance or how does this law function? And um certain laws which may look race neutral when you look at how they function they actually function to serve white supremacy another question to ask as a theologian is who benefits from this right who benefits from the doctrine that we have a monopoly on the priesthood and the priesthood will never be taken away from the earth yeah i'm not even i don't have time to answer that but everyone at home (laughs) exercise for the reader here's your homework think about who benefits from that Hmm. Um, and then the other question as a theologian you can ask is what are the limitations, right? So yes, we have this priesthood power, but what are the limitations of that priesthood power? Have mm-hmm. we thought about that? Have we thought about how to exercise it responsibly? So those are all of the the things that I that I think are important. And the last thing I want to say about this authority is look at how Jesus talked about authority, and I don't have time to talk about it, but I'll just give you a hint. Yeah. Did he ever tell people up front and explicitly where he got his authority? And it mm-hmm. seems that the answer is no, mm-hmm. right? People demanded that Fowler stage three question, like, what right do you have? Where's your authority? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus didn't answer them mm-hmm. in, the, in, in any straightforward way. And I think that's going to be what happens to us queer people. Will someone say, well, Derek, where's your authority? How do you, how dare do you have the right to, to, to teach people on this? And how do you know that you're, I'm like, have you earned the right to ask me that question? Right. <laughs> and the answer is no. Like you don't get to ask me where I get my authority. Um, and so too bad. I'm going to put myself in Jesus's camp here. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Speaking of your own authority, let's look at verse 46. It says for a book of remembrance, we have written among us according to the pattern given by the finger of God. And it is given in our own language. Isn't that Ooh. beautiful? Right, yes. We get to articulate it in our terms. Mm-hmm. And how dare people look at me and say that I'm unfaithful for doing what God's people have always done is expressing our passionate love and faith for God and God's covenant people in our own language, in our own terms. Like we queer people make up our own terms, right? So why don't I get the gospel in my own language? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my question for people who talk about the uh, the proclamation on the family. And I think rather than talking about um, where the proclamation on the family is wrong, we perhaps might talk also about how it can be translated. Because the stuff it says about great families absolutely can be translated to queer families. Like I love those good parts that we talked about in um, having a healthy, stable, uh, Christ-centered, loving family. Like, yeah, we queers can have that too. We just need to translate that language on male and female. It's not um, 
uh, an apostasy to translate the text. Why can't we translate male and female into the language of my own people? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a, it's a faithful translation, I think. Anyway, so we are almost out of time. I will have more to talk about <laughs> next week about uh, Enoch and Moses chapter 7. All right. Looking forward to that. And uh, great discussion, great points that you brought up. I really appreciate. Uh, I mean, I always do, but I'm just going to say it again. I appreciate everything that you brought to the discussion today. So thank you, Brother mm-hmm. Derek. Yeah, and you survived some jokes. I did. I survived some yeah. jokes. I did not. I did not inflict you with any this week. You were feeling generous today, but every time you feel that generous, I can't help but wonder if you're okay. Like, it's such a big part <laughs> of your normal that I actually low-key worry. Like, the jokes is the way that I know that Derek is relatively okay. And Derek no. ain't cracked but one joke today. So I'm just like, okay, I'm a yeah. little concerned, but I'm not too concerned. So I'm just going to let it go today. Just going to let it go. Yeah, well, humor is... a. Uh an important tool of prejudice reduction. And I need to, uh, we all need to remember that. Yes. Interestingly enough, a uh, uh, friend of the podcast, brother, uh, or I should say, Dr. Tacovi Jackson Van is actually uh, talking, giving a, I mean, mm. right now at this moment in time is actually giving a, uh, giving a talk on this very thing. Uh, the role of humor and love in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in in these things. So um, I think that's going to be available on his page, Two Brothers Counseling, uh, on Facebook. I think there's an Instagram page as well. Uh, they're recording the meeting. They are recording the meeting, so I think it will be available after the fact. But I definitely encourage y'all to listen to that. Uh, brother, brother Tacovi Jackson Van is a uh, very intelligent brother. Very, very. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, very good therapist, just all around a good soul. And uh, I really hope y'all would, uh, you know, for those of y'all who are into mental health or in also into these conversations on, you know, managing relationships, creating appropriate boundaries, using humor and love in the uh, face of such things, I definitely recommend that you uh, check him out. Again, that's Two Brothers, B-R-O-T-H-A-S, Counseling. Uh, I think that's the website, and that's also the name of the page, Two Brothers Counseling. Uh, before we wrap up for the day, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Um, some really great things and great conversations happening over there. There are in-depth interviews mm-hmm. about religion and culture. There's brilliant writers and scholars and activists and other people that are going to be uh, on that show. And he says, if you're spiritual but religious or religious but not spiritual – or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. So y'all can learn more and uh, listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or or uh, wherever you get your podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, that's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at uh, Beyond the Block podcast.com also on facebook and instagram at btb lds and again uh for now tell folks how to find your course oh yeah 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 yeah. so the course is going to be first of all in the show notes for today's episode i'm going to be sure to put a link there uh we've also posted a link uh on our facebook page i'll be sure to repost it uh with um uh i'll just repost it on today which is monday um when the thing drops 
on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, mm-hmm. there will be an article dropping from the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, they are going to be talking about my course. And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, it's going to be really good. There's also going to be a link in that article to sign up for the course. And uh, finally, it's going to be on the website. It is going to be available from the drop-down menu. You can go see the course there. And also, it's going to be available uh, from the link in our Instagram bio. We have a link tree there that has a bunch of important links to stuff we've done in the past. The most recent one is uh, the course itself. So you can use any one of those options if you are looking to uh, register for the course. Awesome. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and, and let's see, Twitter and Instagram at BTB LDS. And you can also find us on Facebook. And I think that's uh, that's the rest of the where you can find us. Yes. Also, uh, before I forget, a uh, special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with the social media stuff. And of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include uh, uh, information from the Faithful Feminist and Holy Human episodes from the same week. So all of it will be together in the outlines. You can find a link to the outlines in the show notes, as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website, or just go to tinyurl.com slash btboutlines. Did I get that right, Derek? Right. Yes. Okay, cool. And same goes for the transcripts as well. You can find those through all the same things. Uh, drop-down menu and the uh, show notes. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, one more thing y'all should nope, that's not relevant because it'll be Monday by then. But I'm gonna say it anyway. Uh those people who pre-ordered the pre-ordered my course, they'll be able to uh join me for a talk back slash debriefing session. I would like to talk with some folks about uh what worked and what didn't work in the course, uh what kind of media they want to see in the future. Um, and, you know, answer whatever other questions they may have about things generally or about the course itself. Mm-hmm. That is open to both the people that do a pre-order of the course and it's open to all collaborators in our community. And if you're trying to become a collaborator, it's not too late. Uh, you can go to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That is glow.fm slash beyond the block. And you can uh, become a collaborator by uh, supporting the show. and you know, whatever way you feel is best. So that is also an option, and I'll be sure to put that link in the show notes. Now I think I'm done. Is there anything else we got to put out there, Derek? Nope, that's it. Very good. Then thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Okay, till we meet... Okay, until we meet again next week. Bye-bye.